Hello, friends. This is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Uh, today, I am pleased to bring you another guest. We're going to be talking with Paul Taylor. Uh, we've talked to Paul Taylor before uh, when he was part of Creation Today. Again, Paul Taylor, uh, a little bit about him. Uh, he's been speaking on creation and apologetics and against evolution for over 35 years. He taught science in public government schools in the UK for nearly 20 years. He's worked with ministries such as Answers in Genesis and Creation Today. That's uh, the ministry that uh, Paul Taylor just recently was a part of with Eric Hoven and did a fantastic job with Eric Hoven. They, they were doing the Creation Today uh, podcast as well as, well, it was more of a video cast for uh, a couple seasons there. If you haven't checked out uh, that video cast, you really need to check it out. It's uh, Creation Today. But now Paul Taylor is uh, the director of the Seven Wonders Museum. That is the Mount St. Helens Creation Information Center. Uh, the website sevenwondersmuseum.com. Uh, yeah, Paul Taylor is now working with this ministry talking about uh, Mount St. Helens and what it has to say about a young earth and uh, catastrophism, which is certainly another great topic that I want to explore with Paul down the road. Uh, he's also authored nine books, including The Six Days of Genesis, Itching Ears, and the book we're going to be talking about today, Don't Miss the Boat. So with that, let's go ahead and welcome Paul Taylor. Hey, welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. So, friends, today, like I mentioned, we're going to talk about Paul Taylor's new book, uh, Don't Miss the Boat, Facts to Keep Your Faith Afloat. Uh, now, friends, this book is excellent. I have read it cover to cover, uh, and I keep going back and jumping around and looking at some of the different facts. There is, uh, well, it's unique. It is like everything about the flood. So the book starts, and for the first several chapters, you get more of an expositional look at the Bible, uh, Genesis chapters 6 through 8, uh, and look at, drill down and look at what the scriptures actually say about the flood. Uh, and then we look at a little bit uh, about the history of the world and, and the flood. And then we jump into, or I should say Paul, jumps into uh, the science behind the flood. And uh, I can't really say I have a favorite section. Uh, there's so much there, and it is, it's such a, a magnificent book. I love it. Uh, it, it. So really, Paul, I just want to ask you a bunch of questions about the book. I want to pique people's interest in, in getting your book, because I think it's a, it's a great resource. Um, so, yeah, starting off towards the beginning of the book, you, you're talking about some of the expositional, uh, well, you're looking at Genesis chapters 6 through 8, and you brought up some interesting things about how the world has changed post-flood, which, um, you know, I've heard these things before, but the first time I heard them, it, it kind of rocked me a little bit. I thought, huh, well, I guess I never thought about that. Uh, you, you talked about how animal behavior has changed, uh, our diets have changed, uh, justice for murder, and also you mentioned um, that perhaps... It hasn't rained, or it never rained before the flood. Did you want to comment on that? Sure. Um, 
the, the jury's really out about whether it rained before the flood or not. Um, uh, I suppose my suspicion has always been that it, uh, that it didn't. Um, but we, we, you can't actually be that sure on that, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, uh, the only thing that the Bible says is that it didn't rain in the Garden of Eden. Um, you know, there was no rain in creation week, but it is, you know, a lot of people assume that that means it didn't rain before the flood, but actually it doesn't say that. Um, it, okay. So, uh, I think, I think the jury's out on that one. Um, I, I would suspect there would probably not be so much rain simply because, uh, it seems to me that, uh, the, the rainbow was probably something new after the flood that people hadn't seen before. Um, and, and it would make sense to me that way, but it's not so. It's not a, um, a terribly important point. I know that uh, there are many other creation scientists who would disagree with that. Uh, with that that point, they would say, well, actually, uh, it's simply God giving uh, a sign that was already available, some new meaning for them to uh, uh, to use. And, uh, hmm. I don't know that you can really make a terribly important theological point that way. It's just it seems to me that the, mo- uh, mo- the model was suggested easy to consider there was no rain before the flood. Diet was certainly changed after the flood because after the flood, um, God allowed us to eat meat. So we presumably uh, understand then that uh, the, the various um, conditions after the flood were not conducive for perhaps some of the plants that would produce the greater amounts of protein. Um, certainly God is giving permission with... Uh, a deterioration of, uh, of um, our genetic makeup. He's given permission for us to eat meat after the flood. Uh, you know, it says in Genesis chapter nine that um, God says that, you, that we may now eat every moving thing. And you know, I taught my children not so long since to a branch of a well-known burger chain, and I understand that their products do contain every moving thing, so it's perfectly <laughs> okay to eat those. Oh boy. In your book, you also mentioned uh, that there is many flood legends, uh, that uh, around the world, many different cultures have flood legends that, well, some of them are very similar to what we see in the Bible, although the Bible's truth, it, it's not a legend, but we see a lot of them that are very similar, and then some of them, well, not so much, but they still contain elements of there being a global flood, and uh, a small group of people being saved from it. Did you want to comment on that? Well, the existence of even just one or two um, uh, accounts of the flood from outside uh, biblical uh, perspectives is, is enough to, to make you sort of sit up sharp and think, well, there's something going on here. Um, why would other people groups in different parts of the world have accounts of, uh, of the flood? <laughs> why, why would that be the case? Um, and, and it's really because their ancestors are looking back to the time when there was a real flood. So yes, the account we have in the Bible is the, is the true account. It's the only one that has all the details and it's the only one that uh, is, is actually believable. You know, if you look, say, at the dimensions of the Ark in the um, Epic of Gilgamesh, it would have been a cube. Um, you know, that they... They've obviously misunderstood things at some point, so whoever's been passing the information down. And the, uh, the cubic arc um, described in the Epic of Gilgamesh would just have rolled around on the waves. Everyone would have died inside. Um, right. So clearly that's not true. But 
the fact that they talk about the worldwide flood and an ark um, suggests that they knew something. You know, where did they get these accounts from? And there are accounts in, in various different parts of the world, widely diverse cultures, that the evolutionists would not really think um, those cultures have got anything in common or, uh, or have had any contact in the past. So the existence of the flood accounts in all those different uh, uh, different people groups um, is, is, is consistent with the idea that the biblical flood is true and that all these people have taken their stories uh, following the Tower of Babel incident, they've taken their stories uh, as they've been scattered throughout the entire world. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of these days I want to actually do a podcast where I discuss just a whole slew of these different flood legends and, and compare and contrast them. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Um, you mentioned also the, the Tower of Babel. You brought that up in your book as well, how uh, distinct language groups, uh, that bear no relationship to each other. Um, you talked about basically the, the uh, current theories as to how we got our languages and how they don't really uh, fit with the theory of evolution, but yet they do fit with the Tower of Babel incident. And an evolutionary view of language can't really cope with the, the concept of the people group, uh, the people groups, the different language families. But... Um, you know, there are some there are some languages that, um, if you use the word evolution in its broadest term, then uh, you can understand some languages that clearly have evolved from each other. So you could, uh, because it's not we're not talking about biological evolution anyway. We're talking about change. So you can see that some languages have developed from other languages. You know, you can see that English, for example, has developed from um, Low German and has got mixed with uh, with French at different points and a number of other bits and pieces. So from history, you can see how there's been development there. And all those languages are within the Indo-European group. But then you look at other languages, and uh, there's no relationship. So you've got the sort of Chinese language and the various uh, languages allied to it. They're not related in any way to that group. And you even get some small groups like the Basque language. The language of the Basque people in northeast Spain is related to no other language on earth. A small group of people. Uh, as to the best of our knowledge, there's no relationship between that language and any other, though. There's some people have said that there's uh, actually one Native American group that seems to have some similarities, which is interesting. But as far as we know, there's no relationship. Now, this doesn't make sense in an evolutionary sense. So these languages you would have expected to have developed from a common language. But uh, from, uh, when we take the Bible as true, when we understand that, it makes utter sense because the original language, the language groups, the languages from which these languages have developed would have been the original languages that God created at the Tower of Babel, as he then spread the people out over the entire world. They had different languages, and uh, so that's, uh, that's why there is no relationship between these language groups, because those are the languages that uh, God created when he put confusion into the language. There's a very, very good book, by the way, by my friend Bodie Hodge, uh, about the Tower of Babel, which goes into that in a lot more detail. I've only covered a little bit of that, uh, mentioned that, but uh, um, Bodie Hodge's book, which is called The Tower of Babel, or Tower of Babel, whichever way you want to pronounce it, and he actually spends the whole of his first chapter talking about how you pronounce the word. <laughs> but it's, uh, that's a very good book, and I'd recommend that to anyone who wants to study that subject in more detail. 
Yeah, yeah, Bodie Hodge. Isn't that uh, Ken Ham's uh, son-in-law? That's correct, yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I, I have heard him in uh, a few podcasts, and yeah, that book looks really good. i got to check that out, too. Um, one of the things that you really elaborate on quite a bit in your book and uh, one of the well, one of the features of your book that just really blew me away was you explaining how the flood may have occurred. Okay, and I understand this is a theory, but it, it was a pretty comprehensive theory, start to finish, on how the the flood actually played out and how it affected the features of our planet. Um, do you want to, could you talk about the, the flood theory that you subscribe to, the model that you like to, um, well, you think is the best model? Yeah, well, I, I do not have any qualification for developing a model on the flood, you know, and there are, there are a couple of different models uh, uh, about the, the flood and how the flood could have occurred. The, the model that I subscribe to, which uh, probably most creation scientists subscribe to, is called catastrophic plate tectonics. And um, I, it's, there are a number of creationists who have sort of developed this theory. And if I, I'll try and list uh, them all, but I'll probably miss somebody out. You were talking about people like Steve Austin, uh, mm -hmm. John Baumgartner, Larry Vardiman. Um, I know there are a couple of other people. Um, one of the principal ones among them would have been uh, Andrew Snelling, the director of research at uh, Answers in Genesis. And uh, mm. Andrew Snelling wrote a two-volume work uh, called Earth's Catastrophic Past, which really gives a comprehensive view of how the flood developed. It's really a rewrite of the classic book, uh, of Genesis Flood by Wickham and Morris. And mm. um, uh, Dr. Snelling was asked to to, uh, to update that book um, by the late Henry Morris, and he did so. And it's just a very, very important book and explains how um, scientifically the, uh, the flood could have developed. Uh, so I felt that I wanted a sort of dumbed-down version. So that's, that's, <laughs> that was really the reason for my book. Um, I wanted a, a dumbed-down version. So really, that, that's what you'll find in my book. So the idea is that the driving force behind uh, the flood would have been the uh, opening up of the fountains of the deep, which uh, we would say is uh, massive volcanic and seismic activity, which would have split the crust apart. Um, and created the tectonic plates that we have today. Now, the point is that the tectonic plates that we have today uh, would have moved apart very, very rapidly indeed to begin with. There was a whole uh, catastrophic formation of these plates, and uh, the continents uh, would have split up from the original pre-flood single continent in the early days of the flood while the continents were still submerged. It's interesting that this model actually goes back to the um, scientist Antonio Snyder Pellegrini, who wrote a, a book on the subject, uh, uh, what he called Continental Drift, published in 1858. Um, but he was ignored, and he was ignored because he thought that these continents, just as we do today, that these continents would have formed during the flood. Um, and so he wasn't expecting that the continental drift would have taken millions of years on the country. He thought that it would have happened in the first few days of the flood. But what he saw was the pattern that we, we, we're pretty familiar with today, that the continents clearly form a jigsaw and that they fit together uh, pretty nearly perfectly. 
so he saw that and realized that they must have split apart. So what we're saying is that they split apart catastrophically. Now in history, Snyder Pellegrini's idea was ignored, uh, largely because the idea of millions of years came in, but later on it was picked up in the sort of 40s and 50s by geologists who produced a uniform, uniformitarianism deep time version, which is the version that um, uh, geologists, secular geologists use today, uh, where they say that the, uh, the tectonic plates are moving at the same rate and have always moved in the past at the same rate as they do today. Well, you know, we're saying that, well, no, they must have moved catastrophically to get them going in the first place. Right, right. And so that's kind of uh, that whole concept of the unified continent is now what people refer to as Pangaea. It's, it's basically the same as, uh, as Pangaea. Now, there are differences on that, and there are some of the um, uh, creation geologists, I've talked about that in my book, but... Uh, you know, my book is a very simplistic view on the subject, and uh, anyone who wants to delve into this more deeply would need to read some of the uh, peer-reviewed literature, and some of that I find very difficult. Um, <laughs> and some of, some of them talk about continents splitting up and then joining together again and then splitting up again, so, um, um, you know, so that the, the, the continents today could have been formed from a, a sort of pre-flood or early flood submerged Rodinia, um, there might have been more than just the original Pangaea, but uh, certainly that, that's the model that we, we would suggest is uh, the best one, whichever, whichever version of you that you take. Uh, the, the fountains of the deep would be the driving force, water from the mantle then being driven up at supersonic speeds into the atmosphere, and as that fell, that would constitute the waters, uh, the, the windows of heaven. And uh, so you see so you've got the driving force for the entire flood, uh, continental breakup, and the waters, all from that one mechanism. Mm. <clears throat> and, you, and you talked about uh, plate subduction and how that played into it um, as far as, uh, uh, well, the, the, the whole catastrophic model of how that played out. Did you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, plate subduction is nothing unfamiliar. You know, uh, that, that is the, the model of how things would have driven. Uh, uh, you know, we, we know today that obviously where I live is in the Cascades. Mount St. Helens is one of the Cascade volcanoes. And the reason why there were so many volcanoes in the Pacific Northwest is because this is the point where the, uh, the tectonic plates are, um, are subducting uh, the Pacific plates and the one further north and that. And because I haven't got my map in front of me, I can't remember the name. I know it's a Spanish-sounding name, beginning with J. Someone will perhaps ring in and tell me. Um, <laughs> but anyway, those, those plates are subducting um, under the North American plate. Uh, but our model would suggest that, um, when I say our model, it sounds like I'm taking credit for it. I'm not. I'm just using it. You know, the, the various creation scientists who developed this model have shown that uh, that, that uh, would have been as a runaway process early on in the flood, and it's that runaway subduction that really helped to drive uh, the entire process. Hmm. One of the interesting things about this, by the way, is that the model, the computer model that is used by most geologists today to help them uh, uh, plot the movements of the tectonic plates was developed by Dr. John Baumgartner but they don't like uh, Dr. Baumgartner's timescale because Dr. John Baumgartner is one of the developers of the catastrophic plate tectonic theory. He's a Christian and a creationist. Okay. Okay. And then, okay, so you mentioned that uh, these uh, fountains of the deep broke open 
they uh, sprayed water at, at supersonic speeds up into the atmosphere. And you mentioned later in your book how that actually influenced uh, potentially, possibly an ice age that lasted uh, anywhere from two, well, somewhere around 200 years. Yes, there are different models, again, on uh, how long the ice age would last. And again, I'm, I'm basically only trying to popularize other people's work. Um, right. it, it would be good to, if people want to look into uh, that in more detail, they need to read Michael Lord's book on the Ice Age um, and or the various scientific papers that he's written. But certainly the, the idea of there being a flood, uh, concluding with there being a warmer ocean than today and a cooler atmosphere than today, is the best model for explaining why so much precipitation after the, after the flood would have fallen in the form of snow in areas where you don't tend to get snow today, and that would have caused um, the Ice Age. So the, the, the model, the, uh, the, um, uh, the flood model, uh, believing the Bible to be true, is the best explanation for how the, um, uh, the Ice Age could have come about, and uh, the secular ideas don't really cut the mustard. <laughs> Right, right. And, well, it, it's taught that there was an ice age. In fact, uh, some schools have thought, you know, that a lot of people teach that there was many ice ages. Um, I guess, why do scientists, first of all, why do they believe that there was ice ages? Like, what particular features on our planet make us believe that there was ice covering the planet at one time? Well, we see the action of, of current um um, glaciers in different parts of the world and uh, we see the glacial moraines left over um, by, um, by glacial deposits uh, and the point is then that um, we can also see those effects in valleys that we believe that ice must have, uh, must have cut down we can see those deposits um, near, near to uh, where we think there must have been glaciers in the past so there's large parts of North America and Europe where the, there isn't ice today. There isn't an ice cap today, yet we're seeing the same effects there as places in the world where there are ice caps and uh, glaciation. So the model seems to work scientifically. The model also works biblically. Uh, you know, the book of Job talks about treasures of snow, and so it certainly fits in with the whole concept of uh, uh, there being uh, ice and snow in areas where today we don't have ice and snow. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, another thing that you cover in the book is what you talk about the geologic column. Uh, in fact, there's a quote. Let me just read it. Uh, this is uh, DJ McKeon. He says, The evidence from a fossil record supports the theory of evolution because it shows animals and plants becoming more varied and more complicated as time goes on. Is that true? Well, the whole point of me quoting that was to show that's clearly not true, because the fossil record does not provide that evidence. Uh, but that's, yeah, uh, D.G. McKean is the author of a very well-known high school textbook used in Britain. And you will find similar quotes in uh, high school textbooks used uh, here in the United States, too. Uh, I, I used that because I was familiar with that. It was one that I used when I was a high school teacher in, uh, in, in Britain. So it's a pretty bold statement, and it is one that's capable of being tested. And so we can test it. 
and uh, in fact you don't find that's the case. You do not see evidence of gradual change in the fossil record. Uh, you know, it's not difficult to look through the fossil record and see that what the fossil record contains is evidence of two things. Evidence for stasis, that uh, there are creatures uh, in the fossil record which exist today, practically unchanged, and it's also evidence for extinction, that there are creatures in the fossil record which don't exist today because they've died out. So that's what the fossil record shows. It shows stasis and extinction, but the one thing you won't find in there is gradual change. Right, right. And, and even in your book, you mention uh, some of the, the uh, fossils that are supposedly supposed to be uh, more simple, and they're not really that simple. Yeah. Um, another thing you talk about is uh, perhaps, again, uh, you're not taking credit, but a theory as to how these fossils may have gotten sorted in the layers that they're found in. Uh, did you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, I found that fascinating. Dr. Kurt Wise's work on uh, on that, I was uh, I was very interested in that uh, he's he suggested, and uh, I know there are many creationists who have different views on this, but it just seems it, I, I thought it was worth explaining in the book. He suggests yeah. that the layers, uh, the geologic layers in the geologic column, do have a meaning. And, you know, there are certain things you find about the, uh, the fossils in layers. It is the case that you will find fossil gymnosperms and fossil dinosaurs together, gymnosperms being the large non-flowering plants. So, you know, I was always taught at school that this is because flowering plants have not evolved during the dinosaur era. So that's why dinosaurs lived in areas where there were um, uh, fossil gymnosperms. Um, Dr. Wise's idea is, um, is, is just uh, an eye which is an eye opener to me. When I saw it, I thought, why didn't I think of that? The idea is that the layers do mean something. They mean different environments. So basically it is that dinosaurs happen to live in areas where there were fossil gymnosperms, uh, rather where there were live gymnosperms. They lived in gymnosperm forests. Maybe those would have been at lower altitudes, closer to the sea. Uh, angiosperms, flowering plants, are often found in the same layers as mammals. Maybe they were at higher latitudes and therefore fossilized later as the floodwaters rose and uh, as, as the waters were washed uh, violently higher and higher. And um, those would have been closer to the Garden of Eden, maybe. The Garden of Eden must have been on a higher level because the scripture tells us that the river came out of Eden and then divided into four streams. Uh, last, time, last time I looked, rivers flow downhill, which would suggest <laughs> that the source of the rivers must be at a higher uh, latitude. Uh, not latitude, oh, then, higher altitude, but you call not higher latitude, higher altitude. Right, that makes sense. And, then, and so uh, one reason, potentially, according to this theory, that, that the fossils are found in the layers that they are found in is because as the water rose up, it, it continued to climb up this one continent, uh, and you have different regions where different types of animals are. Um, you also talked about, like, uh, hydrodynamic selectivity, um, and, and also, I guess, the mobility of the animals as well, and that could play a role. I mean, yeah, you're not going to find... There are explanations, too. You know, obviously, animals would have been um, fleeing the floodwaters. They wouldn't have stood and allowed the water just to cover them over their heads, you know, and, of course, right. the waters wouldn't have been rising slowly either. There would have been tsunamis. Uh, this would have been a violent effect. So, you know, there would have been other things thrown in place 
Andrew Snelling talks about that in his book as to why it is that there are marine fossils in so many places because you know more than 95% of the fossils you'll find are actually marine fossils you know a huge number of the fossils that we mostly come across are marine creatures um, so I guess it's a violent event but also some animals would have been um, able to move away quicker and get to higher ground and they, therefore they would have died last but there's all sorts of other factors to take into account as well. You know, none of these models are going to be perfect. We're talking about a dynamic situation. And, of course, not every animal that dies is fossilized. In fact, only a very small number would have been fossilized, only those that got trapped, uh, trapped underneath sediments and probably crushed in many ways. Um, animals that floated away would have simply rotted away or, uh, you know, or been eaten by insects and, or other or sea creatures or whatever because sea creatures wouldn't have had much of a problem in the flood um, so uh, there's, there's all sorts of dynamics to take into account we're not making a full explanation with, uh, with this my book doesn't offer a full explanation so it's meant to be for the layman the layperson in the pew uh, to try and uh, help them understand a little bit more about the reality of uh, how events happened in the flood uh, yeah you keep saying it's kind of a, a, a dumbed down uh, uh, account Maybe that's why it appeals to me so much. <laughs> my ministry, my ministry is to dumb things down. You know, uh, I, sometimes people like to refer to them as creation scientists, and I've come across many creation scientists who are less qualified than I am. Um, you know, so I, I make that point. Um, uh, I, I think most creation scientists should not call themselves creation scientists because they're not scientists. I am not a scientist. I have never been employed as a scientist. Uh, I do not have a PhD. I have not done professional research. That's not my field. In fact, although I have done some research, um, research has entitled me to be a member of the creation, a voting member of the Creation Research Society, for example. But uh, my research was not in science as such. It was in science education. Slight difference, because of course I spent a lot of my, uh, spent 20 years as a school teacher. So my right. ministry is, uh, as I see it, is to try and take concepts that other creationists are doing at the cutting edge of research and make them understandable and get people to understand the points of them. Amen. And, and that's why we need people like you so desperately bad because, yes, there's a lot of uh, creation scientist material out there that, yeah, you read it and it's very technical. Uh, you go cross-eyed. Some of us, like me, fall out of my chair and twitch on the floor for a while. Uh, it, it's heavy material. And your book, I think I love it so much because it takes that technical content, it digests it down, and and yes, you, you serve up some models, some theories, but you also give a lot of good science to back them up. And uh, it's just, it's so easy for uh, the layman, such as me, and many of my listeners, to take and, and actually uh, read and understand and enjoy. So yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, while we're talking about fossils, you brought up um, one of the misconceptions that uh, carbon-14 dating can prove that fossils are millions of years old. Uh, you even went into uh, a little bit of detail on how, how carbon-14 uh, dating works. Can you talk about that a little bit? See, dating methods are so badly understood in popular science and even presenters of science television programs in the popular media quite often don't really understand what they're talking about with dating techniques. They simply assume that everything can be dated somehow. Um, 
when I uh, when I was a boy, I used to go to um, um, a seaside town. My parents would take me to a seaside town called Blackpool uh, in the northwest of England. One of the things that Blackpool is famous for is Blackpool Rock. And uh, Blackpool Rock is a very, very sweet, sticky candy that will really rot your teeth away. It comes in a long oh. stick. But the point is, if you break that stick, it's like a long stone. If you break that stick, you'll always find the word Blackpool written through it. And I think that some people assume that if you take a fossil and crack it open, it's got the date magically printed in the middle of it. <laughs> uh, there isn't anything, any such thing, and there's no way of measuring the date. Uh, um, there isn't a clock uh, in there. Um, what there is is a process, uh, um, you know, and the radioactive processes where. Uh, something, one, one radioactive material is decaying into a stable material. So it's a little bit like an hourglass situation. In an hourglass, you would have sand running from the top of the hourglass into the bottom of the hourglass. If I left an hourglass on the desk, you would come to it and I'd say, uh, can you measure how long ago it was when I put that hourglass there? So you would measure how much sand there was in the top of it, you'd measure how much sand there is in the bottom of it, and you'd measure the rate that the sand is going through the hourglass. And you'd say, well, based on that, I can calculate that you placed the hourglass there uh, perhaps about, let's say, five hours ago because of the rate at which the sun's running. And I would say, no, you're wrong, because when I placed the hourglass there, not all the sun was in the top. There was already some sun in the bottom. And secondly, while you weren't looking, I shook the hourglass to make the sun run through quicker. And also, <laughs> I added a little bit extra sand into, uh, into I opened the stopper up and added a little bit extra sand. So you see that the, uh, the principle of measuring the time of the hourglass has made three assumptions, none of which are provable. The three assumptions are that the rate of flow has never changed, the rate of change has never changed, that the, um, all the uh, sand within the top of the hourglass and uh, that um, uh, nobody has added anything to it. In the same way, radiometric dating methods, like, say, um, uh, the uranium lead method, will assume that the rock had no lead in it to begin with, that all the lead that's in the rock has come from uranium. So you measure the amount of uranium, you measure the amount of lead, and it assumes that no lead ever got added to the rock or taken away from the rock, uh, which is unlikely since lead, is, lead compounds are quite soluble in water. Uh, it assumes that uh, all the lead came from the uranium, there was no lead in the original rock, and it assumes that the rate of change, the half-life of uranium, has never altered. None of those things are correct, well, uranium lead and other similar radiometric dating methods only work on igneous rocks anyway, and fossils, by definition, come from sedimentary rocks. So that dating method doesn't work. All you can do is compare it with a rock that's been close to it and hope that the ages are similar. But again, the dating method for the, uh, for the igneous rock is dependent on those three assumptions, none of which are provable. And then you come to carbon-14 dating. Well, of course, the fossil doesn't contain, usually, any of the material from the original creature anyway. A fossil is not the original creature. A fossil is a, a cast of the original creature. You know, the original creature has long since rotted away and gone. It's like a footprint in cement. That's what it is. And, of course, it's an exact representation of what the creature was, but it's not the original material. Um, uh, now, carbon-14 will decay over a period of time uh, into nitrogen, and they will therefore disappear. So uh, if we know how much carbon-14 there is in living creatures today, where the amount of carbon-14 is constant, if we take something dead and uh, we measure the amount of carbon-14 in that, we can work out how long ago that creature died. 
based on the fact that the half-life of carbon-14 is just short of 6,000 years. But if that's the case, after 10 half-lives, you would expect to have such a, a negligible amount of carbon-14 left, an unmeasurable amount. So right. 10 half-lives would make about 60,000 years. Let's add a little bit on just for good luck. Uh, there is no way that um, um, carbon-14 dating really can measure anything above 100,000 years, even if I believe that the Earth is 100,000 years. So carbon dating is not used on fossils, and no serious evolutionist would claim it is. But the popular media don't get that, and so they still talk about that. And I've even read a passage in a textbook, uh, a biology textbook in this country. Now, I think it's the Prentice Hall one, but I might be doing them a disservice. It might be a different one. But it's definitely one of the common textbooks uh, in um, use in, uh, in, in many high schools in the United States. And the passage actually in the book actually says that the uh, fossils can be dated by carbon-14. It then gives a correct explanation of how carbon-14 dating works. But the original assumption was wrong. They then say they admit that carbon-14 can't date above a long period of time. So they say it's used for dating young fossils, whereas uranium lead is used for dating old fossils. Both of those facts about dating methods is wrong. And it's there in the textbook, and the high school kids have been taught that. And no serious huh. evolutionist would teach people that. But the popular media and the people who are writing stuff for textbooks don't understand the fine details of the science. I found that when I was a school teacher myself, that many of the other science teachers didn't, didn't know the latest science. They didn't even know the latest true science, let alone uh, the latest evolutionary theory or whatever. Even when we're talking about actual proper true, genuine observational laboratory science, many of them were not up to date with what, with what the latest scientists said. They'd been teaching for 20-odd years when I got into the job, and in all that time, they hadn't really done a great deal of research on what science was currently hmm. saying. Well, that's too bad. And then, and then we are taught that as fact, when in fact, well, science is done up and moved on. Exactly. Uh, it, Exactly. Now, that, that's looking at science teachers who have a degree in science. And, you know, I, I don't think I'm criticizing them too much. I've been a school teacher. I know how much time has to be spent in lesson preparation and in marking books and so on. And there just isn't the time so often. You know, they go home to their families in the evening. They're not really going to spend the evening researching the latest science and uh, necessarily taking the latest science journals and so on. Um, so I understand that, but, you know, there, there is a problem. You would expect the writers of textbooks to have got their facts right. They shouldn't be oh, sure. guilty of that. They should, they should be able to get that bit straight. But also, you've got to remember, an awful lot of uh, high school teachers, certainly in Britain, many high school science teachers, particularly some of the part-time ones, lower down in the school, are actually not science teachers. It's their second subject. Mm. And I know that that's the case in, um, uh, in the United States, too. That uh, quite often there'll be people who are not specialist science teachers who are teaching science, and that makes the thing a lot little bit worse. Right, right. I, yeah, absolutely. I, I had multiple uh, uh, science teachers throughout high school that that really wasn't their subject. Yeah, in particular, look at physics, for example. How many physics teachers are qualified physicists? <laughs> very, very few. <laughs> Because why would they be when a, when a qualified physicist will earn far more in, a, in most other careers than in teaching? Right. So it's, it's uh, only those who really have a very strong vocation, only physics graduates, only the ones who have a very strong vocation for teaching will go into it. Otherwise, they'll go somewhere else where they'll earn more money. 
and that's the case on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, most, I mean, I, I have a degree in chemistry, and yet for half of my teaching career, I had four different teaching jobs in, the, in that 20 years of teaching, two of them as, chem, as a chemistry teacher and two of them as a physics teacher. And even when I was a chemistry teacher, I was teaching physics a large part of the time to younger classes mm. because the difficulties that many schools have in Britain, and I understand here too, in finding physics teachers is great. Now, therefore, they're teaching some of the finer points of physics. Now, I felt okay about that, and I did try and make sure I was up to date with concepts. But, you know, you're talking about some of the finer details of, uh, uh, of what people know, and they get, um, they get it wrong because they're not specialist in that subject. I've gone off on a long bunny trail there, Michael. I'm sorry. I can talk, <laughs> I can talk for hours on the subject of education and the problems on it and, uh, you know, why it is that uh, creationists need to, be, need to be involved in this and need to understand this. Because the public school teachers often do not know the answers, and I'm not criticizing them. There's, in many ways, they can't know the answers, and they are being badly served by the writers of the textbooks. Mm, preach it. Yeah. Um, back to the flood. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> okay, going back to uh, C14 dating, you mentioned that uh, there's carbon 14, not a whole lot, but it's being found in diamonds. Why yeah. is that a problem? Well, that's very interesting, isn't it? And uh, you know, again, not, uh, the, the stuff that I'm writing, I'm sort of pooling it together and trying to make sure that people understand it. that that information is from the uh, the rate books, radioactivity and the age of the Earth. And uh, you'll find that, uh, yes, diamonds, which have been dated by other dating methods, mineral dating methods, um, strontium uh, uh, radioactive dating methods or uranium lead, uh, dated as being well over a billion years old, and yet they contain carbon-14. So they give a carbon-14 age of maybe about 50 or 60,000 years. Now, neither age is correct, because I don't believe the Earth to be that old, but the point is there's a huge difference between 60,000 years and a billion years. Right. Uh, you got, okay, just now, this is a little off the subject, but you brought up the uh, RATE project? Yes, sir. What is, what is that? Um, there's a, a, a number of, um, uh, of projects that uh, creation scientists have written on looking at um, experimental evidence for the Earth being considerably younger, uh, showing that the, that the, the biblical uh, position of the Earth being 6,000 years old makes sense scientifically. So there's a large number of things in, in uh, those books. Um, very, very difficult technical stuff. You need to understand a lot of physics to follow it, but... Um, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, for example, uh, and this really does bear a relationship with what you've been asking me about to do with dating of fossils and things of that sort. Um, some of Russell Humphrey's work on uh, yeah. the, um, the radioactive decay of uranium, I talked about the, uh, um, uh, the uranium lead method relying on the idea that uranium decays at a constant half-life into lead, so the half-life hasn't changed. But Russell Humphrey's research shows that it must have changed Basically, the way it works is this. He looked at uh, zircon crystals, which contain uranium. Now, in the case of zircon crystals, they're buried so deep that there actually couldn't have been any material lost from the crystals. So we can remove that assumption, which means that all of the um, uh, lead uh, must have come from uh, uranium, though we don't know whether it was uh, uh, um, originally all uranium or not. But, of course, if it hadn't uh, all been uranium to begin with, that would make the crystal even younger. 
So let's just take the worst case scenario, which is that none of the lead was naturally in the rock uh, when God created it, but it all formed from uranium. So then you do the uranium lead calculation and find that the uh, the zircon crystal is 1.5 billion years old. The thing is that uranium decays into lead by a 14-stage process, and eight of those steps involve alpha decay, the other six are beta decay. Now, alpha decay is producing alpha particles, which are the nuclei of helium atoms. So basically, to cut a long story short, every one uranium atom that turns into one lead atom will also produce eight helium atoms. Okay, you with me so far? <laughs> that means that you can calculate if, if the lead in the rock uh, crystal has all come from uranium, you can calculate how much helium must have been made. So for every one lead atom that there is in the crystal, eight helium atoms must have been made. So you know how much helium there should have been in the crystal if none of it had escaped. But some of it has escaped because it doesn't have that much helium. Now you expect that. You expect helium to escape. Like mm-hmm. kids' balloons. You know, if they lose, you know, what happens when kids are at parties, uh, particularly in churches and halls and things, they will always let go of the balloons, won't they? And then there's a tears and tantrums because the balloons are up at the <laughs> ceiling and uh, I, I haven't got the energy to jump up and reach it, so I'm afraid it's lost and my kids cried buckets over helium balloons, you know. Um, <laughs> but, the, but the balloon doesn't stay there, does it? It eventually no. will come down. After a couple of weeks, the balloon sinks down to the ground. Why? Because the helium has diffused through the, uh, the latex of the balloon. Well, in the same way, the helium must have diffused out of these crystals. So if you know how much helium there is in the crystals, and you know how much helium there should have been by the calculation, you know, eight helium atoms for every one atom of lead, then you can calculate how fast the helium has diffused if you know how old the crystal is. Trouble is, we have two different ages for the crystal. One is the secular age, being 1.5 billion years old, and the second is the creationist age, assuming that the crystals are only 6,000 years old. You then take crystals from different depths, so they're at different temperatures, and you get a, a, a graph of the rate of diffusion against temperature, and you draw two curves on that graph. One is your creationist curve, and one is your evolutionary curve. What you then do is you take some crystals that have still got helium in, and you deliberately heat them to higher temperatures to drive even more helium out. And you measure the rate of diffusion of the helium at those higher temperatures. So you then get a third graph that you can plot on, a third curve of the higher temperatures. And the question is, is that third curve going to fit with the evolutionary curve or the creationist curve, or is it going to fit nowhere with either of them? And the answer is it's an almost perfect fit to the creationist curve. And that, and that was amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, when he lines that out, it, it is pretty fascinating. And you actually, don't you have a graph that, <clears throat> that shows that? Yes. Well, again, it's Russell Humphrey's graph. I've credited him right. in there, but that's from the, uh, the rate book. So, yes, I've tried to explain these things and tried to uh, help make it so that people can understand them. Yeah, you did a fantastic job. It, it really is a good book. Uh, so, Paul, Paul, it has been a pleasure having you on the podcast. I really enjoyed being here. And remember, if anyone is in the Pacific Northwest and they happen to be in uh, Washington State, 
Uh, come and uh, find the Mount St. Helens Creation Information Center. You just have to leave Interstate 5 at Junction 49. You head east along the uh, State Highway 504 uh, for about nine and a half miles, and there you will see us on the uh, on the right-hand side of the road, and you can find out about the uh, creationist interpretation of uh, uh, the, the uh, volcanic eruption events of the early 1980s and uh, a lot more as well. You can come in and find a well-stocked bookshop, and we'll give you lots of information about the subject. And, and friends, if you want more information as well, you can check out the website 7, that's the number, 7wondersmuseum.org. Uh, there is quite a bit of information about the museum there as well. Uh, also, just so you guys are aware, and I mentioned this in the previous podcast with Paul, but uh, he also has some other books, The Six Days of Genesis, uh, he has itching ears. Those are the three main ones that are out at the moment that are in print, plus a couple of small uh, e-books that you might want to get. Uh, so, yeah, do do have a look for those. And uh, maybe well, if you get the opportunity, you want me to come and speak at your church or organization, then uh, you'll find uh, ways of contacting me through that website. And I'm, uh, I'm still traveling all over the United States uh, speaking on the subject of creation and genesis and apologetics. Oh, wow. Yeah, that'd be great. Absolutely. All right, Paul. Well, thanks again, and uh, I will be contacting you soon to talk about, um, uh, well, Mount St. Helens and uh, what that has to say about catastrophism. It's a wonderful subject. I look forward to that, Michael.